0: Good morning. Our reading this morning is from John 2, 1 to 11. Everyone organized to read from the screen or from their Bibles. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from
1: Thank you Sue, our loving Father in heaven please open our eyes to what you want us to know from this passage and more importantly what we want to believe, what you want us to believe and help me to be really clear, in Jesus name, Amen. You may have heard the story, I think I've told it, of the young English clergyman who was struggling to prepare a sermon for Mother's Day because he knew that he'd be delivering to the ladies' guild, a rather frightening group of ladies who would come out of the woodwork and come to church on Mother's Day, ignore him completely during the sermon, just chatting amongst themselves. And so he thought, what am I going to say to get this group to listen to me? And then he got it. So come Mother's Day, with this intimidating group of women assembled, he climbed into his pulpit He looked down over the vast sea of whispering hats. He cleared his throat, and in a loud voice he said, the best years of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. And every eye shot up and focused on him. Of course, he'd intended to then explain the other man was his father and the other man's wife, in whose arms he'd spent the best years of his life, was his mum, and that the best years of his life had been those in which, as a baby and a young child, he had been nursed and cared for by her. Uh, Well, that's what he intended to say, except he forgot. Uh, His mind went completely blank. And so, fumblingly, not really knowing how you recover from such a moment, He continued on with his sermon, with everyone sort of holding their jaws in their laps where they had fallen. And that's it. So uh, now that you're listening, happy Mother's Day to you. Um, And I tell you that story not just to get your attention, which I know I've now got, but because today we have this story about Jesus and this wedding miracle, and it involves a rather interesting dynamic between Jesus and his mum. I wonder if you noticed it. Mary alerts Jesus to this impending social disaster, tells him to do something, and then he borders on rudeness. Woman, why do you involve me? As if he really doesn't want to get involved, but then he proceeds to be involved anyway. It's bizarre. My parents are here. Mum, Dad, hello. Hello. Together they have now not one, not two, but three granddaughters who have weddings between September and January. Not Sally, just to be clear. (laughs) Right, and there's lots of planning and there's lots of excitement and no doubt lots of stress, but usually for weddings, on the day, it all comes together and things work out. Not here. There's a disaster. They've run out of wine. But good news, Jesus, the miracle worker, who hasn't done any miracles yet, he happens to be one of the guests and saves the day, he turns water into wine. And we think, what a great story, you know, bonus for all the people who are there. But then immediately comes two thoughts, the what and the why. First of all, what's the point of this? What do we do with it? You know, what is the point? Is it that Jesus is the great party maker? And then what do we do with that? What's the application? Drink more wine? Um, Is is that why this story is there? Is this sort of a God-ordained smackdown rebuttal to teetotalers? So what's the point? What do we do with it? And then the why question, why does Jesus do this as his first miracle? As a nation, we're about to elect some new senators to the federal parliament who will soon, after being elected, stand up in parliament and deliver their maiden speech. And their maiden speech, is always a carefully crafted manifesto telling everyone what they stand for. This is Jesus' first miraculous sign. If you like, it's his manifesto. But we note there are no sick people present whom Jesus heals. He's not casting out any demons here. He's not feeding the hungry. He's not raising the dead. Instead, he turns water into wine, as if that is what he stands for. Now, why would he do that? The answer, and it's not really an answer, is given in verse 11, when John says that what we have here is not so much a miracle, though it was a miracle, but a sign. That's what he calls it, and that's important. Because a sign looks beyond itself to something greater. It isn't the reality, it's what it points to that's the reality. A sign signifies something else. And so we think, well, what is that greater reality that is signified by Jesus in his first sign, his manifesto on why he's come? Well, I want to suggest to you... uh, that this is an eye-opening sign, and I want to open our eyes to it in three steps. First of all, to think about special moments. Secondly, to think about the wedding itself. And thirdly, to replay the wedding video, to pick up on clues that we might have missed. So let's think just for a moment to get started about special moments. In life, there are moments, aren't there, special moments which happen to us where we take a breath And we just think, this is so good. This, this is what life is about. Last month, Narelle and I had a holiday on the Sunshine Coast with, um, not with all of our family, but two of our daughters came, one son-in-law. It was wonderful. There we go. And um, our son-in-law cooked for us the whole time. They were the terms of him coming. (laughs) True, true. We think it will work, says my daughter, if Frank cooks the whole time. And he doesn't like any help in the kitchen, so he wants to do it all on his own. Is that okay? (laughs) We we accept those terms, all right? (laughs) He's a fantastic cook. (laughs) So uh, it was wonderful. You know, he cooked. He's an excellent cook. Kitchen is his happy place. We relaxed. We went swimming in warm water with waves. Yes. It was a wonderful holiday. Um... We're on the beach there, and then we enjoyed the local cafes. There we go. It was, for me, such a really great time, and it reminded me, you know, this, this is what life is worth living for, right? Um, now, that's not to say that all of life is like that, but occasionally, God gives us a moment in our lives, a chance to take a breath, to feel his goodness, and to point to one day how he intends things to be for us now in our rhythm of life weddings can be like that for us in Jesus day your wedding was the biggest event of your life the feasting would go on for days five to seven days usually and even though Jesus at first seems reluctant we'll get to that it's no accident that Jesus first miraculous sign occurs at a wedding because the setting itself points to the greater reason of why he came. Jesus came to bring us into joy, deep, relational, lasting joy, with God and with one another. And perhaps when you think about it, the closest moment we can get to in our lives that captures that really well is a wedding. That's what Jesus came to bring us into. Now John says this story happened on the third day, meaning the third day of him traveling up from Jerusalem. But to us, we've just come out of Easter, mention of the third day evokes all that joy of remembering the resurrection. Okay, more than that, on the third day means more than that. If we read John chapter 1, which talks about what happened on one day and the next and the next and the next, if we put all that together... We're now actually, or Jesus starts his journey on day five. He travels day five, six, seven, the third day, which actually is day seven in John's gospel. And John's gospel, which begins with the words, in the beginning. And those words themselves are very evocative. They take us right back to the beginning of creation, Genesis chapter one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now in the creation account, Day seven is very significant. Day seven is where the goal of creation is realized. And that goal is rest. God rested on the seventh day and made it holy. Now, that doesn't mean that God was tired and he needed to have a, a sleep. It Rest here means the deep enjoyment of all that he has made. This is creation coming to its potential. People and God living in rich relationship with one another, walking together in the cool of the garden together. So here is Jesus on day seven in the gospel, day three of his traveling up from Jerusalem. He's choosing a wedding as the setting for his first sign to signify what he's all about. And it fits because when you think about it, You know, the closest moment we get to in our lives to that concept of rest is a wedding. When else do people put put, press pause on their normal daily things? They, They stop work, they stop what they're doing, they travel to gather together to meet in the presence of God and celebrate the rich relationship of enjoyment with one another and in thankfulness to God, you know. There are bad weddings and good weddings, but a good wedding that is wholesome and joyful is a glimpse of the rest that God has made us for. And um, maybe if you think, well, that's not my experience of weddings. (laughs) Um, Well, maybe, maybe, and introverts, please bear with me here. Um, Maybe that's because we find them exhausting. But imagine a less exhausting wedding setting that actually was stretched out over a whole week. And gave you downtime as well as uptime. And gave you time for conversations and time to meet together and time to celebrate together. Over a week. A great setting. And that brings us to the second point, the wedding event itself. Cana was a very small village in Galilee. It was only about nine kilometres or so from Nazareth where Jesus lived Reading between the lines, it's likely Mary was a close friend of the groom's family because, I say that because she seems to have the inside knowledge of what's happening in the food and drink department, right? She is part of the catering inner circle, okay? And uh, she knows something before all the other guests do, and indeed before the master of ceremonies knows it. So she's aware of the crisis of running out of wine at the wedding, Now, we have to understand this wasn't just an inconvenience. This was a a real crisis for the groom's family. All of the guests there are there at the invitation of the host. People had travelled to be there. And in that culture, provision was the host's responsibility. And what people drank at weddings was wine. It was um, usually watered down between a third to a tenth of what we drink today. But now they have run out of something to drink Now, running out of wine would not only mean party over, time to go home, sorry, it would have been a huge embarrassment to the hosts. And in a culture which values hospitality, especially at a wedding festival, when all stops are pulled and generosity is the flavor of the day, the guests will have expected the host to be generous and well-prepared. Even in our culture, when weddings are smaller affairs than this one, I can tell you, having organised two of them in the last few years, making sure there's enough for the guests to drink is a a pretty top-order priority on the wedding planning schedule. But now they've run out of wine. And so without saying to Jesus, do something, Jesus' mother says to him, do something. (laughs) Okay, she says... They have no more wine. Do something, you know. And we think, well, what is she really expecting him to do? He hasn't done a miracle yet. Um, But we know that she knew that he was different. You do wonder what it would have been like having your eldest son as the son of God. Tricky, right? Um, (laughs) She hasn't seen him in full flight yet, but he's different. Get involved and fix it. To which Jesus says, and I'm sorry to have to point this out on Mother's Day, Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Woman, I mean, goodness gracious. Um, There is no getting around the fact that this comes across as rude. And that's not what we expect of Jesus. Neither his words, my hour has not yet come. We think, well, what is that about? particularly since now he does something. Describing what happens next, John focuses our attention. He zooms in and helps us see before us six stone water jars. And he describes these very carefully. It's very interesting. Doesn't describe other details. Describes this one really um, carefully. Six stone water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's 75 to 110 liters. On the screen there are jars like this that were uncovered in Jerusalem in 1969. Six jars with a combined capacity of around 600 liters. And now John slows the story right down and we can see the action unfold. Jesus tells his servants, fill the jars with water. So the servants fill them to the brim. And he tells them now, draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. And they draw some out and they take it to the master of the banquet and then you know the camera zoomed in on him and we can see him raising the glass to his lips and then his eyebrows shoot off the top of his head in surprise at the sweet taste of delicious wine on his lips and as we see his eyebrows raise so also do ours because we know that it was water that was put into the jars. The servants know that he should have been tasting water. Jesus knows that. His mother knows that, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know where it's come from. And so the turning point in the story comes, in his words, to the groom in verse 10. The crisis was the potential embarrassment to the groom. All of that is now forgotten when the master of the banquet says these words, and they're delicious. He says, everyone brings out the best wine first and leaves the cheaper wine till later on when the guests are now happy and not so picky about wine quality. But you've done it in the other way round. You've kept the best wine until now. And without knowing it, his words, his eyewitness testimony words, have confirmed that a miracle has taken place. Water has been miraculously turned into wine, not cask wine. 600 liters. Of Grange Hermitage, John says that in the story Jesus revealed His glory. What glory? John says that what happened caused Jesus' disciples to put their faith in Him. What do we? What did that? Did they see that and understand that we're missing? Being a church pastor, I, I, one of the great privileges is, is being able to perform weddings, which I get to do, and it's such an honour and As much as I can try to imbibe the business end of the day with as much seriousness and significance as I can, for the bride and groom, it goes like that. And that's why some couples opt to have a video taken of their wedding so that they can look back and see all the things they've missed. My dad is an expert at this. He takes videos. He puts them together with soundtracks over the top. It's fantastic. It's a great gift. Invite him to your wedding. Okay, um, <laughs> so let's go back now over the wedding video. What are the details we've missed? First of all, there's the crisis of shame. Now I've described this, but we can miss the significance because we don't live in a shame on a culture. And we can simply overlook how shameful it would have been to the groom and his family to have run out of wine. The banquet would have been over. And instead of a banquet that was meant to last for a week, which everyone was expecting to last for a week, the the guests would have had to go home early at half-time. And the wedding, instead of it being a success, it would have been a failure in people's memory. Uh, And for that family, an ongoing painful sore, right? For them in their memory, at how shameful the moment was, for all of their significant friends and family, all right? Now, if we've ever been the cause of bringing serious embarrassment to our family, you remember what that was like, you begin to understand. It would have shamed them. Shame is that awful feeling when, because of what's happened, what you've done, you've lost face and you feel unworthy. You feel dirty, you feel like you don't belong and you're unworthy to belong. You shouldn't belong. So there is a real crisis of shame. Next, the jars. John's very specific in referring to these vessels. They were water jars for Jewish ceremonial washing, we are told. The thought behind those is that because God is holy and pure and without sin, and because we are not, we are flawed. There's something wrong with us spiritually. Who we are and what we've done renders us unclean, renders us unworthy. And, and the idea is that we need to be made clean. We need to be purified, washed. Our sin needs to be atoned for. The, it has to be dealt with. And that's why they had these purification rites and washings and, and sacrifices, sacrifices of atonement. The whole idea is because God's holy and we're not, we can't just coexist with God. We can't walk into his presence. Something has to be done about what's wrong with us. And by Jesus ordering the Jewish ceremonial jars to be filled with water, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm taking charge of purification from now on. And we see the result. He really does save the bride and groom from searing shame. And that, friends, is an illustration of what he came to do for us. He came to take away our disgrace. He came... To render worthy the unworthy. He came to wash away our shame and to replace it with joy. How? Next, let's think about the interaction between Jesus and his mum. He calls her woman. My goodness. I bet this wasn't on Mother's Day. I hope not. You can't get around that he's bordering on rudeness, um, even though some translators translate it as dear woman. You know That's a fudge, okay? Um, we are meant to think this strange and out of place of character, because it is. What's going on? Clearly he is under pressure, he's feeling stressed. And then he says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then he goes ahead with a miracle. We think, what gives? In the rest of the gospel, every time Jesus speaks of his hour as coming or having arrived, he is speaking of his death. It happens in chapter 7, it happens in chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. His hour is the whole point why he came and it's speaking of him dying for us. And he speaks about it chapter eight, back here, that's what he's talking about. My hour has not yet come, why do you involve me? You know, often we'll hear it said, um, you know, if only the church could stop fussing about doctrine and just get on and, uh, and imitate Jesus' example, then the world would be a better place. Of, of, I mean, if everyone imitated Jesus' example, of course the world would be a better place. But oftentimes people who say that miss the point that th- the main reason why Jesus came was not to set an example. The main reason, according to him, was to die. That is his chief Reason why he came. For him, his hour was the time on the cross and that's when he would do his greatest work. Because, you see, by shedding his blood, he washes us clean. By sacrificing himself, he becomes the atoning sacrifice to end all sacrifices. By suffering shame, he removes our shame. And he's in a context where shame is the issue and then, I think, needing to deal with that issue under pressure from his mum, he's thinking, my hour has not... That's when I'm to really taking away people's shame. And that's why the illustration of him taking away shame here with the bride and groom is such a good illustration of why he came to come. That's why it's such a good manifesto. He came to wash us clean. He came to restore us. He came to say, guess what? You didn't belong, but you do now. And guess what? <laughs> you know, here's the setting, the party. Relationship with God, relationship with other people. Rich, deep, joyful. That's why he came. And that makes him what? Well, notice who the action in the story becomes focused on. Um, when the camera zooms in, it's not on Jesus. The camera zooms in on the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet then was the MC, the presider. He, it was his job to make the banquet great. He didn't organise everything, but he ran it. And when Jesus turns water into wine, he's saying, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the Lord of the feast. I have come to bring joy. And yes, I must suffer And following me involves self-denial and sacrifice for my followers, but those aren't the end. Those are a means to the end. Ultimately, the reason why I have come is to bring people into rich relationship of festive joy and, indeed, to to have people enter it right now. And that's why it's my first sign, because I'm pointing you to what I'll bring you, which in the Bible, interestingly, is described in the sensual and relational language of feasting. In Isaiah 25, we are told at the end of time, the Lord Almighty will prepare a a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, And he will remove people's disgrace from all the earth. And in this miraculous sign, Jesus is revealing to us himself as this one. The true master of the banquet, the true Lord of the feast. And in fact, he's even more. In verse 10, the master of the banquet takes the bridegroom aside And it's quite funny to hear him congratulate the bridegroom for saving the situation because, you know, we laugh at it because it wasn't him, it was Jesus, we know. But there's point to to our laughter because Jesus is the true bridegroom. If it's true he's the Lord of the feast, it's equally true he's the ultimate bridegroom. And we see it at the end of the Bible when the feast is described that God has in store for us. It's described as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Where Christ himself is the bridegroom, his people are the bride. We're going to think of more of that in two weeks' time, so I'm going to leave it there. But John says that when Jesus' disciples saw this sign, they put their faith in him. Because they glimpsed something of what he was pointing to. It wasn't an end in itself, the water in the wine. It was pointing to something. Um, It points us to who Jesus is and what he came to do. He came to bring us joy. And who he is? He's the Lord of the feast. He is the master of the banquet. He is the heavenly bridegroom. He, He came to die, to wash us clean, and to bring us into God's rest, to that great wedding banquet where we will taste and we will enjoy all that God has in store for us. And the Grange Hermitage that was served up to the guests, only a taste, only a taste of the rich things to come. That's why he calls us, to put our faith in him. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this story. What a wonderful story. Thank you that we can glimpse something of the good things that you have in store for us and and also something of what Jesus came to do and we realise we need him to wash us because none of us have lived without shame and we all need to be washed we so much want to be part of that banquet at the end of time so thank you that he came to make it possible and help us wherever we're up to to put our faith in him. Amen.